There's a lake on an island in a fjord near Vancouver that Wade Davis recommends for a hike if you ever get to visit where he lives on Bowen Island, B.C. Which has to be one of the most beautiful, you know, hour and hour and a half walks to be found in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Coming up, we'll enjoy the small town scene that's hiding in plain sight of Vancouver. A Seattle photographer has explored Alaska's North Slope for years. He's seen what's happening to the polar bears and learned Arctic wisdom from the people who called the furthest north home. When you think they're just huge, wild places, they've actually been inhabited by races and cultures for thousands of years. And for a mix of old-world Europe with a modern vibe, look into what you'll find in Poland's capital, Warsaw. It's a very cosmopolitan, trendy, world capital city. If you visit a country for the first time, it's a really good idea to start with a capital city. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. It's a thriving 21st century city that rose from the ashes of World War II. Today, its modern neighborhoods rival its touristy old town. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how Poland's capital, Warsaw, offers a lot for you to do, learn, and enjoy. And a Seattle photographer tells us what it took to capture stunning scenes of polar bears and to learn from the spirit of the Alaskan Arctic. But you don't have to go to extremes to chill out. We'll start the hour in a relaxed island getaway, a short ferry ride from Canada's West Coast metropolis. It's like a gem hiding in plain sight of Vancouver, B.C. Bowen Island is a low-key, relaxed community 20 minutes by ferry from the Vancouver North Shore. Anthropologist and author Wade Davis has made it his home for the past few years, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about one of the coolest day trips or weekend getaways you can take from Vancouver where traffic can't get in the way of the beauty of the British Columbia coast. Wade, thanks for joining us. Oh, wonderful to be with you, Rick. You have traveled all over the world. You've got so many stories in the 20-some books that you've written, ranging from Colombia to Haiti to the Amazon and Malaysia. And you call home an island just north of Vancouver City. People love Vancouver City. People love the Gulf Islands nearby. It seems like you got the best of both worlds. Describe Bowen Island. Well, Bowen Island sits at the mouth of Howe Sound, which just by chance is adjacent to Vancouver, but it happens to be one of the most beautiful fjords on the whole coast of British Columbia. The island itself is home to, I guess, about three, 4,000 people. Obviously, the summer population goes up. It's a 20-minute ferry ride from Horseshoe Bay. Many people will know that ferry terminal. Uh, but it's it's across this extraordinary kind of uh, body of water where you see orcas and obviously mm. eagles and seals. And there's a sort of a wonderful sense of separation. When you get on the ferry, you just begin to relax. And because people get intimidated by the very idea of a ferry, it didn't have that kind of insane surge in real estate values that you saw in Seattle and that we certainly saw in Vancouver. And so you have a kind of mixed community on Bowen. You know, you have people from all walks of life, but it's got a real old-time kind of wonderful Canadian community sense. And of course, it's got a lot of artists and writers and musicians and people who can afford not to go into the city, you know, five days a week. 
and work from home. And of course, this is all obviously being accentuated in the COVID crisis and so on. So Wade, when you think about Bowen Island, uh, Lonely Planet's guidebook calls it the best day trip from Vancouver. If you wanted to, to visit Bowen Island, would you, would you actually sleep there? Would you camp there? Or would you make it a day trip from Vancouver? What would you recommend? I think you can do so many different things. It's got 13 beaches. Um, it's got the trail system across the heights of the highest point, which is Mount Gardner, with incredible vistas south toward the university, uh, west towards Vancouver Island, and of course, north up Howe Sound itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a beautiful lake, Killarney Lake, right at the foot of where we live, uh, which has to be one of the most beautiful hour, and hour and a half walks to be found in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And of course, you can in Snug Cove, you can rent kayaks. There are wonderful uh, pubs and uh, spots, wonderful shops with art. You know, there's a lot of artists on the island. And people are very friendly. And they're, they're, I'll tell you this, there's a kind of a sense that we're all in this together that I really, really find really endearing about being in Canada. And I think this is part of the, the matrix that makes Canada really work. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Wade Davis. He's telling us about his home port of Bowen Island in the Strait of Georgia, just off the North Shore of Vancouver. Wade's a professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia. He's the author of many books on the country of Columbia, books on Haiti, the Amazon, Malaysia. His website is daviswade.com. Wade, isn't the Sunshine Coast just a little farther north from there? If you go up how sound, Rick, of course, you eventually get Squamish, which is just exploding. It's become like the desirable place for, for all young outdoor Canadians. It's an incredible community. And of course, north of there, you, you get the great resort of Whistler and eventually Pemberton. And then you can cross over the mountains to Lillooet in the Fraser Valley. And then if you take the ferry to Gibsons, you, you end up in the Sunshine Coast, which is another um, I love that unique. ferry. That ferry is just a treat. And then you drive up and you get to literally the end of the road at Lund, which is a yeah. great jumping off point for uh, Desolation Sound and some amazing natural wonders. Up you know, we're, we're all blessed in the Pacific Northwest, Rick. You know, I mean, one of the things I find it's worth remembering is that, you know, until the building of the Panama Canal, this was about as far from Europe as you can get. So at a time when the Amazon had been explored for 400 years and Montreal, for example, was entering a third or fourth century, uh, Europeans hadn't even reached this coast. So one of the things that's really wonderful yeah. is the dynamic presence of the First Nations. Now, this is something I wanted to talk to you about because uh, the University of British Columbia, where you're a professor, has a prominent museum of anthropology and you're a professor of anthropology. And every time I go to Canada, I'm impressed. I'm inspired by the respect Canadians give their indigenous peoples. Uh, what's your take on that? And, and what can Americans learn from this? Well, I mean, obviously, Canada has not always been uh, kind to the First Nations. We have a very dark history of the residential schools, as did the United States, the Americanization of the American Indian. But there are a couple of big differences between the States and Canada that's no one's fault. Um, you know, America primarily was a settler society. I mean, people came over from England to practice religious freedom or their own brand of religious intolerance, but they were there to stay. And Canada in its genesis was a mercantile society of fur uh, traders. Trappers. And we, yes. and we, you know, and our entire economy for 250 years was based on a fashion statement, the beaver hat. <laughs> and so, and so we, you know, we didn't set out to slaughter indigenous people as indeed did happen in the States. We often married them and married up in the world by doing so. And that doesn't mean we've been kind, but there's been certainly recently a tremendous effort at reconciliation, a national catharsis 
as we've tried to come to terms with our past and a really, I think, imperfect and lots more to do, but really admirable way. I mean, if you think about it, we have one of the quirks of Amer- of Canadian history is that the British North America Act and then the Royal Proclamation of 1763 said that all First Nations had to be treated with. And by the time the frontier reached the Rockies, the collapse due to disease was such that the colonial fathers didn't bother to treat with all these powerful societies of the Northwest. And so we now, by every definition of British law, they own the land and we have to treat with them about that. And it's a very complicated, very expensive process. But fundamentally, the entire country is behind this gesture of restitution, reconciliation. So does that mean that your your indigenous population is in a better socioeconomic sort of uh, situation than America's? No. I mean, uh, yes and no. Uh, it, you know, obviously there's no, you know, we've got dozens and dozens of First Nations in British Columbia. Some have really gone through an extraordinary renaissance, like the Haida, for example. And I would say that in general, in British Columbia, the situation of First Nations is better than in the United States, uh, but we still have shameful statistics. I mean, in the same statistically, way, statistically, Indigenous people are usually the bottom rung of the economic ladder. Well, I think a, a bigger indication of Canadian shame would be prison populations, and in the same okay. way that yeah. it's shameful in the United States, the inordinate percentage of African-Americans, given their percentage of the population, Mm -hmm. we would have something of the same shame in our prisons in Canada. So this is not to say that we don't have a long way to go. But on the other hand, you know, some time ago, we created the new territory of Nunavut, uh, an area half the size of Western Europe, and gave total administrative control to 26,000 Inuit people who really do control their own destiny economically, politically, is that, the, is that the Northwest Territories? It was the Northwest So now it has a new name. Nunavut, yeah. It's, it's, ah. it's, it's a new homeland. And the of course, the Inuit are now dealing with something beyond their capacity to adapt to, and that is climate change, where, mm-hmm. where you know, the, the world is literally melting out from beneath them. Well, it's a, it's a huge issue if, you're, if your buildings are all sitting on frozen tundra, right? Right, of course. It's a bigger problem if your entire consciousness is, and spirit is honed by the ice. University of British Columbia anthropologist Wade Davis is joining us from his home on Bowen Island on Travel with Rick Steves. It's a 6 by 12 kilometer island with a relaxed Pacific Northwest atmosphere. It even has seasonal water taxi service from the heart of Vancouver. So we've progressed far beyond beaver hats these days, and with all of the well-meaning approach that Canadians have to First Nations people, what can we learn from indigenous culture? What has Canada learned that that has changed their outlook and give them an appreciation of a different way to look at life and a different way to look at the world? Well, I think the the overall tolerance and the quest for not to be a melting pot, but to be a mosaic, as we say in Canada, a, a world of differences, a pluralistic society in which every voice is heard and each and each is seen to be deserving of an audience. You know, one of the incredible things about Canada is the way that we've dealt with immigration. Cities like Toronto, half the people in Toronto are born outside of Canada. Let me give you one concrete example. All of our fruit in Ontario is picked by Mexican labor, just like yours is, right? But we have a very different system. 
what happens in Canada is a Mexican laborer sometimes actually has their flight subsidized by the government. They arrive, the minute they arrive, they get universal health care, proper union conditions. And uh, if they overstay their welcome, their visa, by one day, they'll never come back. But we don't act on the assumption that they're trying to get in. What person from Guadalajara would want to deal with an Ontario winter? We assume they want to go home, build better houses, flaunt their wealth, and that's what they do. And so as a result of that, we have almost zero challenges on that front because the labor force comes in and it goes back and it comes back again. And uh, I didn't even know about this until I was told by our, our Canadian ambassador in Mexico City. So again, that dynamic, localized as it may be in Ontario, generates a huge amount of goodwill between the Canadian people and the Mexican people. Mm, I wish we would splice that into our discussion when it comes to spending billions of dollars on a, on a wall to keep people that want to come into our country and work out. I know. Yeah, I always think that wall is an act of treason because you're betraying the essence and the beauty of the country. You know, the huddled masses, that's a foundational myth. And, and myths aren't old stories. They're moral charters. And if you betray that, you're betraying something of yourself. Wade Davis, I'm so thankful we have people that we see as brothers and sisters north of our border who can give us a little tough love once in a while when it comes to grappling with challenges that both of our societies are facing. And thank you so much for joining us today. Best wishes with your work as a professor at UBC and with your writing, especially with your books. I'm just loving your book, Magdalena, River of Dreams, The Story of Columbia, as well as other thoughtful books you've written over the years. Take care, Wade. Thanks, Rick. Next, meet a photographer who's been learning from the polar bears in Alaska. And in a bit, we're off to Warsaw in Poland on Travel with Rick Steves. What's a polar bear worth to you? Seattle-based photographer Stephen Kozlowski has made photographing the bears his specialty. He's published stunning photo books of his work and occasionally leads photography tours in the Arctic. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves in one of our favorite archived interviews to tell us how he's been able to capture stunning images of Alaska's North Slope and Arctic coast, where even the light itself can surprise you. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. Now, you've spent a lot of time on the North Shore of Alaska, right? The North Slope. Yep, the North Slopes and then the, and the shore, and it's on the north side of the Brooks Range. And there's one road that goes from Fairbanks up to Prudhoe Bay, which was built back in the 70s, to, uh, to open the Prudhoe Bay oil fields. And at first I lived in a station wagon up on the north slope of the Brooks Range to try to photograph nature in, uh, in, in a different way than most people do and go to the... That's my focus, to, to spend at least half the year in nature, photographing nature. So you're a photographer and you got uh, hooked into the, the, the Arctic. Why not the jungles or, or why not the desert? What, what was it about the, the polar region that grabbed you? I, I often wonder that, and I think it's the open space, and I think it's just wondering what's up there because it's 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 a place where the the clouds and the land and the sky all come together. It's a place where uh, myth and magic and reality all seem as one. There are stories in Point Hope, Alaska, which is in the northwest corner of the continent. It used to be the, uh, the, the Inupiat headquarters in Alaska for the Eskimo people before uh, there were any white folks up there that have stories of uh, hunters going on the ice and, uh, and hunting polar bears and the ice breaking off and floating away and them skinning the bear wrapping all their clothes in the polar bear skin and then jumping into the freezing water and swimming a quarter mile to the main ice to survive. I mean, stories that don't seem real, they seem magical. And the um, the shamans, they used to have, uh, they still do to a point, but they used to have uh, shamans. And the shamans around 
the Inupiat people, the Eskimo people, the Inuit people, they're the only one race of people that circumnavigate the globe as one race of people. So they would all have to get together, all the chiefs for meetings, and they would they would uh, go to the moon to meet at night. They would all do this out-of-body thing and, and go to the moon to meet at night. All the, wait a second, all the uh, sort of uh, indigenous polar peoples, mm-hmm. they have a summit, sort of a tribal summit. It was. It's my understanding, yeah, that they would. Is this meet. a physical thing, or are they just sort of? Uh, it's a, the... uh, kind of a spiritual thing. Their bodies would stay on Earth, from what I understand of it. But they would, you know, tr- you know, shamanism, yeah. traveling out of body, shape shifting, and they would uh, shape shift out of their bodies, and they would go to the moon and have a meeting, supposedly back in the day. Is there some sort of a? Um solidarity that they all feel with each other oh, even, even though they're in different countries yeah or? i mean they're all they're a tight tight-knit group of people and do uh, they get together do they have a, a, a summit they have different games and uh in in canada area they have uh in shingle point now you have to understand all native societies took a beating when uh, the western world came here i think over 90 percent of natives uh died off directly due to actually trying to kill them via disease and by accident in all kinds of ways and the same thing happened in the Arctic coast of alaska so there's been a lot of rebuilding over the last century, I'd say, of their society. And now, again, they have games at Shingle Point um, out of the Mackenzie River Delta. There are also different games and different celebrations. You'll have Nalugatuck celebration in, in places that do spring whaling, such as Barrow, Point Hope, Wainwright. And they'll get together at the end of a successful whale season, and they'll get all the game together, and they'll do a blanket toss and celebrate the end of this. And then they'll give all the meat out. And the point of it is to get all the elders and get the community together as a whole. They're really a community-oriented group of people, something we really lost in our country. And as a photographer and a journalist, have you been there to witness these events? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're pretty special. And, and it's pretty neat how uh, how these people, you know, a lot of my friends have taken me in and let me be a part of these things and, you know, get some frozen fish and go with them on hunting trips. And these people are, they're Native Americans. They, yeah, absolutely. They're just the northernmost Native Americans. Yeah. And they have similar challenges that Native Americans all over the continent have had. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you're up there, you're connecting with the local culture and you're connecting with nature. Uh, as a photographer, I'm sure you're into light, the phenomenon of light. You've got this, uh, what, this ice rainbow and these kind of things. Yeah, light is amazing in the Arctic, right? You might see no light for two weeks because of ground fog and you wonder what you're doing there. And then all of a sudden, um, you'll get eight hours of sunset light, you know, which we get for maybe a half hour or something down here. Eight it, hours of a sunset? Well, you can get it, yeah, where the wow. light's low enough. And yeah. it, of course, it gets lower and lower, but you get this, you know, the angles of the light are just uh, spectacular at different times of the year. In the summertime, of course, it's going to be at night. and the wintertime, it's going to be in the shorter days unless it, there's no yeah. light at all. And as a photographer, as a nature photographer, and the outside being my studio... Everything's about, you know, before twilight and during twilight and after twilight. And again, you know, at the other end of the day, the opposite way. So when I'm doing my work, making the TV show, we have something called magic hour. Mm -hmm. And the sun's going straight up and down. And that magic hour is like a fast moving uh, hourglass, you know. But when you have the Arctic situation, you've got a slow magic hour, don't you? Oh, you have many magic hours in one day. In one row, yeah. So, you know, you can live a month of magic hours in a day. You know, But the Arctic, you have to work hard to see these things or get these things. Again, it's, you know, at face value, you think none of these things exist. But it's a, it's a land uh, that holds so many secrets. And slowly over time, only the secrets will be revealed to you if you're in the right place at the right time. You probably have to spend the time. I mean, it must seem silly for you to see people jetting up there and having an Arctic experience and jetting back. Um, yeah, I try not to be judgmental. You know, mm-hmm. what works for others works for others. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that I've uh, arranged my life to be able to, to do that, maybe. What is the ice rainbow? 
It's ice fog coming off the water, right? You have you have this lead at zero degrees, 10 below zero. You have this open area of water due to currents and what have you in springtime that it opens up. So there's evaporation off the water, of course, and it's making moisture in the air. And then the angle of the light just produces this uh, rainbow, just as the rain does, creating moisture in the air. And you can capture that on film? Uh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Wildlife photographer Stephen Kozlowski is telling us about his work in the Alaskan Arctic right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can view his photos of Alaska wildlife at lefteyepro.com. When you're out there in the elements, uh, as a photographer, I read that your lens cracked once just because of the cold? Actually because of the heat, but it was due because of the cold. Um, without understanding, you know, you take metal out into extreme cold temperatures, 20 to 40 below zero, and then you take it into some place that's, you know, 30 or 40 above zero. Of course, all the moisture is going to jump on the metal. So I got this lens really fogged up, and we didn't have enough heat in the tent to warm the tent up, which we've been doing every day. So I tried to use a little stove to dry the tent off before I went out that morning. And this is like a day before the polar bear came out of its den with its cubs, which I've been waiting for over 20 days for. Oh, no. And the lens cracked, but luckily enough, you can focus through those cracks. And uh, it was a good Nikon lens, and it seemed to work just fine anyway. Wow. You must be sort of like a Wild West trapper up there. You learned in the wilds uh, using drifting snow as a compass? Yes. My friends have uh, taught me that in certain areas where you always have an east or west wind, you can not be able to see anything around you, such as the mountains or out towards the ocean. But you know the drifts, which way they're going to lay and which direction they're going to point so you know where you're headed. And this is an amazing thing about traveling with my Inupiat friends um, like Jack and my friend Bruce that they always look at the ground and they might not be able to see 30 feet in front of them. They might even get lost, but they never seem to get upset or worried about it. And they always seem to find their way, whether it's by little points and bumps in the land that they remember. Oh, I remember this bump. You know, this means that I'm at analog or, you know, and then all of a sudden. So over the years, you start to learn, too, to see the land like they do. They really break it down into small bits and pieces. I saw in your book that you're actually building an igloo. Is that a practical thing to build, or do you do that to say you've built an igloo? Uh, for us, it was very practical because we didn't want to camp right near the polar bear den or where we thought the polar bear would come out. But we, we wanted to get out of the wind because it's 30 below zero and you can't sit out in the wind all day, you know, a 20 knot wind. So we built an igloo to kind of try to hide so the polar bear wouldn't see us moving. Not that she didn't know we were there, but we wouldn't alarm her. And then for us, it was shelter. And an igloo, a wonderful thing about the igloo is that when you first go in an igloo, the snow actually absorbs the moisture. So it's it's relatively warm place to be, 20 to 30 degrees, and you can even run a stove. But traditionally, the Canadian Inuits that used igloos would have to build new ones every so many days because the inside will ice up from uh, just from breathing and the moisture that we create. And if you look at the picture in my book, the polar bear den and the walls of the den are all scratched. Not only is she making the den a little larger, but she's peeling that ice off the wall so the snow will still absorb the moisture to keep it a comfortable place for the cubs to grow up and be raised in. Because they're born with no hair at like a pound to a pound and a half, and they can't see, and they depend on this environment to stay warm while it's 40 or 50 below zero outside. So the polar bear has learned to do that, and the Eskimo people also do that? Exactly. It's often wondered, uh, Richard Nelson wrote an essay in there who lived with uh, people from Wainwright for a while, you know, saying that the Inupiat must have learned from the, uh, the polar bear, like a polar bear, if it's on thin ice, it can travel on extreme thin ice by spreading out its front paws and its back paws to distribute its weight. And uh, he was taught by the Inuit people that this is how you're supposed to walk when you're on thin ice, when you're at the edge of a lead and you're hunting a seal. You know? So it's often said that uh, Inuit people learned a lot of their skills on the ice from the polar bear. Just observing. Just observing, yeah. Right. 
Polar bear photographer Stephen Kozlowski is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Since recording our interview, Stephen tells us he's teamed up with a local Inupiat guide from Kaktovik, Alaska, to offer polar bear viewing tours in the waters of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. However, pandemic closures have suspended those tours for now. We have a link to Stephen's guiding website in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Stephen, you've spent years, literally, up in, in the polar region, traveling, in, it's called in the bush, right? I mean, you fly from town to town, little tiny population. Sure. That must be very expensive. Yeah, it's it can be very expensive. Sometimes people let you wash dishes, such as friends did uh, that took me into places and what have you. Um, but then you you learn how to get around, and sometimes you might get around by snow machine. While I did this uh, this book project, The Last Polar Bear, I would travel hundreds of miles following my Inupiat friend on a snow machine, say, to go from uh, village to Herschel Island, which is just over the Canadian border, to the west side of the Mackenzie River Delta, where uh, Inuit people have lived for thousands and thousands of years. And you can also fly on small plane. I've also snowshoed and walked to certain areas. Excuse me, when you say snow machine, is that the same as snowmobile? It, exactly the same as snowmobile or ski do. Why know? do why do people say I, I've heard I politicians think I do. say I say snow, snow machine? I don't know why I say snow machine, but it really should be snowmobile or ski do. I think ski do sounds better, but ski do is cooler. Yeah. Clearly, Stephen, when you're up there doing your work as a photographer, you're connecting with the indigenous people. It seems like you went up there basically to find nature. Yeah, you know, I, that's always my goal, to get out of society and get into nature and enjoy the beautiful of this cyclical life, this natural environment. But when you go to a place such as the Arctic and you're as ignorant as I was when I started and you think they're just huge wild places, they've actually been inhabited by races and cultures for thousands of years. And you quickly learn that, especially on the Arctic coast of Alaska, that the Inuit people, this has been their home, it is their home, and it will be their home for a long time to come. So... You quickly learn that to understand this environment, which is so harsh. The first time I was up there photographing muskox, I remember it was about five degrees and my fingertips were starting to burn. I was wondering how animals could live here, never mind people, that these people, you know, hold, still hold the secrets to how to get around and travel and be comfortable in this environment and deal with the, the discomfort. Have you picked up tips on surviving in the cold from the Eskimo people? Oh, quite a few, yeah. What's it, an example? An example would be wearing really warm clothes, always being able to make camp at any point in time. So if you have to stay somewhere, you can stay somewhere and always being able to get out of the weather. Get out of the wind? Get out of the wind. I mean, really, that's the key. You know, the wind is the killer. You can be in 20 below zero and be quite comfortable if there's Mm. no wind on your back and you have enough warm clothes. And a lot of them still use skins and what have you. And I'm often up there in my gear and I have some really good Wiggies gear, which is used by the military. And then all this Patagonia stuff with zipper after zipper. And it's kind of ridiculous at a point. And then when you see uh, a Nupiat person put on a, a sheep parka, which is nice and warm, one layer, and he's standing out there 40 below, and he's got, you know, a couple T-shirts or something under it. You really appreciate this connection with nature and an ability to use, you know, animal skins to stay warm and survive in such a harsh environment and enjoy it at the same time. So you see people that actually don't need all this modern synthetic gear. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they use quite a bit of it, too, but they they use quite a bit of the old school because it's still just better, you know, in a lot of ways. Now, your goal in going up there is to capture the wonder of this nature, and one of those wonders is the Northern Lights. Did you shoot the Northern Lights? Yes, I did, and uh, that's kind of interesting for somebody who loves to watch animals. Um, You know, you're always waiting for that beautiful morning and that beautiful evening, and Northern Lights is the opposite. You try to sleep all day, and then you try to get up after it's getting dark, And you wait for the darkest part of the night, the coldest part of that 24-hour period, 
to maybe the sky lights up and, and flares up with the aurora borealis and the, the reaction of all that. But that, when you stay up all night, you don't know if it's going to happen or not? You have no idea. You know, they have websites now that you can watch if there's going to be a solar flare. But I'm usually not that high tech. You know, I'm just, oh, okay, it's clear. Maybe there's a shot. So you sit there in the cold all night, you know, thinking, again, it's going to happen the next minute. It's going to happen the next minute. So you're not really patient. You're impatient with the belief that it's going to happen at any second. And then eventually sometimes it happens. And then you need to know all the tricks. Your camera gear needs to be kept nice and cold because if you take it someplace warm and put it out in the cold or if you buy a stream and there's fog coming off the stream. So it's many of the times that I've had a beautiful light show and then eventually looked at the film or the back of the digital camera and there's nothing there or it's fogged in because I didn't follow the correct procedure. You know, there's when working in the cold, there are all these procedures, you know, things that work in temperatures we live in here in the Pacific Northwest don't necessarily work the same way or nearly as well when you get into zero degrees or 20 below or 30 or 40 below. In that kind of environment, you know, camping out for two weeks just to see the polar bear come out of his den or sleeping in the day to stay up all night to see if there's going to be some northern lights, it must teach you both patience and how to observe. Oh, absolutely. And, what, and what have you learned about that? I learned that uh, if you you sit and look at something long enough, it will appear as many different things over time, you know. You can't often take a quick glance at something and, and understand what it is or what's going on. You really have to sit and wait. And I think that's an amazing part of the Inupiaq culture. You know, they uh, often are very quiet and, and they, they can talk a lot too, but they often don't have much to say. And in Point Hope, when the whalers eventually started wanting to stay in that area, the Point Hope residents in the northwest corner of Alaska settled them um, a little way away from the village and they called it Jabbertown. Because uh, as a Western society, they would always jibber-jabber a lot, talk all the time. The land speaks to you in any nature, in the mountains, in the Cascades, or anywhere. And if you sit there, I mean, there can be a giant raw, whether it's clouds rolling overhead or wind coming through or light coming through or, you know, and, and it's just different than our own voices. And it probably gives you a ability to give a second look to a Native culture that they've got some deep roots and some thoughtful observations. Well, yeah, they spent, you know, thousands of years being uh, entrusted with that area or, or living in that area, and they have an understanding to it that's just amazing. Have you found any parallel examples further south among Indian tribes and so on? Yeah, I think if you look in uh, the B.C. coast at the spirit bear, which is a black bear that's white, it's colorless like the polar bear, and you look at the legend, these people have wonderful legends in the B.C. coast, the Indians there about uh, the gods when the um, the ice sheet moved back and the glaciers moved back to the mountain, made one out of so many black bears white to remind the people that life comes from the ice and comes from the water. So they wouldn't forget, even though the glaciers didn't come right down onto the water anymore and they were higher up in the mountains. Wow. And that's sort of a thought-provoking comment on the canary in the mine shaft aspect of us losing the polar bears because of global warming. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we lose the polar bear. We lose a lot of what's going on in the Arctic and this amazing environment. And then eventually we lose all kinds of other environments, which we don't really hear much about right now, which are starting to fall apart. You look at a lot of mountain climates where they only are in certain elevations. A lot of scientists say that we're on the hugest amount of extinction since way back before we were even on this planet. So that's why you write in your book, The Polar Bear's Story is Ultimately Our Story. Absolutely. It is our story. We're all connected. The world is connected. And as much as we disconnect from nature in certain ways, we can, we can never really disconnect from it. We're all part of it. And 
That's why we should take care of the planet. I think you've picked up a lot of wisdom hanging out in a snowdrift waiting for the polar bear to come out of his den. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate that. Stephen Koslowski, author and photographer of The Last Polar Bear. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Stephen Kaslowski's photo book, The Last Polar Bear, Facing the Truth of a Warming World, won the Ansel Adams Prize from the Sierra Club. Since then, Stephen's photo book titles have included Ice Bear and Bear Country. Our next stop is Warsaw to hear how Poland's largest city has been transformed from its difficult 20th century into a contemporary world capital. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Nazywam się Kasia Darlicka, jestem z Warszawy z Polski i podróżuję z Rickiem Stevem. And that was Polish for my name is Kasia Delicka from Warsaw, Poland, and I travel with Rick Steves. Nazywam się Kasia Delicka, Warszawy z Polski, i podróżuję z Rickiem Stevem. Rickiem Stevem? That's my name in Polish? <laughs> That's your name in Polish. Rickiem Steven. Dziękuję. Dziękuję. While it was once known as the Paris of the North, Warsaw was largely flattened during World War II and suffered under Soviet rule after that. Today, Poland's capital city is thriving and scoring high marks for livability. Visitors to Warsaw will find a dynamic vibe and plenty of culture, history, and attractions. Polish guide Beata Makomis and Cameron Hewitt, who's the co-author of the Rick Steves Eastern Europe Guidebook, have joined us in our studio to get us up to date on Warsaw and take your questions about Poland's largest city. Beata, Cameron, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. So, Beata, you've been taking uh, groups to the capital of your country many, many times. What's special about Warsaw? Why, why should we include that in our Poland vacation? Well, for one, it's our capital. And I believe uh, if you visit a country for the first time, it's a really good idea to start uh, with a capital city. And the second, not only it's the biggest city, but I think is the city that shows you the changes that a whole country went through uh, from the past where we had kings and queens through the communist era, now through the capitalism. And that city in particular is um, it's a great example of what happened over the period of uh, a thousand years in this part of Europe. So you can read the sweep of Polish history right there in Warsaw in so many ways. Right. Cameron, when I was there, I found it surprising. I, I expected a big and oppressive and kind of gloomy city, but that's sort of uh, yesterday's Warsaw. Yeah, you find a little of everything in Warsaw. I think when I first was traveling there 20 years ago, it was a pretty gloomy, oppressive city. But um, over the years, uh, pockets of life have sprouted kind of among the gloom, and um, there's so much to it. There's the, the beautifully reconstructed historic old town that goes back to the glory days of the kings and queens that Beato was mentioning. Um, and then you've got areas that were destroyed completely bombed flat in World War II and rebuilt in kind of a drab and ugly communist style. Uh, but then you also have these really uh, striking new glass and steel skyscraper zones that are sprouting right next to some of these, you know, formerly dilapidated World War II damaged areas. Um, and then mixed into all of it is it's a very cosmopolitan, trendy world capital city. There's just a great food scene. People are very fashionably dressed. There's a lot of business. There's a lot of government. So there's kind of an urban vitality to it. You know, when I go there, I'm I'm aware that Warsaw was literally flattened in World War II, but you, you get a sense that it was an elegant, thriving place between the wars, and they've resurrected or saved a little bit of that. Don't you find a little bit of that 
elegance that somehow they've rebuilt and it works? Absolutely. They've, they've had to rebuild it because, as you said, Hitler was, was furious at, at Warsaw for a couple of uprisings, and he, he had the whole city destroyed systematically block by block. But they did take the, the time to recreate some beautiful areas, especially in the center. Um, there is one place, for example, though, there's, a, there's a, what used to be the arcade of an old palace in front of a beautiful garden. And the garden is still there and still very beautiful. But all that's left of the palace is just this arcade. And now it's a memorial to the Polish people who were lost fighting in wars. So it is pretty powerful. All the, all the suffering and the heartache. And, and then at the same time, all the memorials and to remember those in war, war. So they've done an amazing job of that. And then also this parts of the elegant past and, and a very modern future. So it's, it's a city of, of the past and the future. Now, Beata, you grew up in Poland in your youth. It was basically ruled by the Soviet Union. When you look at Warsaw today, what do you see that is a, a physical souvenir of those Soviet days when Warsaw was in the Warsaw Pact? Still the tallest building in Warsaw, the uh, Pałac of Culture and Science. The Palace of Culture and Science. That's the building that looks like one of those skyscrapers in uh, Moscow. Right. That's actually a twin building to the one in Moscow was given to us by Stalin right. as in a gesture of friendship. Really? But, but the local people didn't really think it was much of a gesture of friendship? No. <laughs> Despite what the regime wanted us to think about communism and Russia, yeah. um, we did not have a great, had great sympathy. Uh, we did not like the Russian government, the Russian country. So just the fact that they uh, built the building, it kind of became a symbol of oppression. So it just sticks up like a big phallus. Right. I mean, it even even has a nickname. Yes, yes. A gift from Stalin. Right. Called Stalin's penis. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So people of Warsaw just look at this thing and they think of Stalin and not much of a gift. But today, uh, that's ancient history. Right. For, and uh, after 1989, after the fall of communism in Poland, for a couple of decades, we, were, uh, we the, the government of Poland and the government of Warsaw, was thinking about, well, what should we do with this building? Should we build some skyscrapers higher than the building surrounding that one mm-hmm. uh, to cover it up? Um, but within the last decade, I feel like we made a peace with our communist past mm-hmm. um, to the point where now we... Um, we take ownership, not only of that one particular building, but what happened during the communist past. And um, the building just started being uh, cleaned up. So we started off with the, the, the viewing balcony on the 30th floor. Um, and then we, I'm assuming we'll be moving forward. So, so now we're owning that building. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Beata Makomis and Cameron Hewitt about Warsaw, the capital city of Poland. Cameron, I'm so impressed by how Warsaw has rebuilt its historic old center. I mean, you look at it, even the, even the defects in the buildings before the bombing damage were built up with the same defects so that you walk through there, and if you knew it was rebuilt, you'd know it's rebuilt. But if you didn't, you'd walk through and think, this is a nice medieval quarter. And you know how they did it. They actually used historical paintings. They went into the National Museum and the National Palace, and there are several places in Warsaw where you can see a replica of a painting positioned exactly facing the street that was repaired using that painting. And if you compare, you can see that uh, that was the best record that restorers had. They didn't have architectural plans for a building that was 300 years old, but they could have a painting that showed what it looked like. And that includes the the royal castle, which is actually the top palace, right? Yes, royal castle. And I was going to say, there's uh, some great sightseeing to be done in Warsaw as well. And one of the great sights is the royal palace, is the historic uh, castle of the Polish kings. 
And you can tour the staterooms. You can see some of these original paintings, uh, historical paintings of Warsaw that were used to rebuild the city, other historical paintings. And it's a very, uh, as, as with any great European country's main palace, it's a very lavish palace with beautiful uh, furnishings and interesting sim- symbolism and all of the different details. Uh, it's really a, one of the, the better palaces I've toured. So the palace you'd want to see for a bit of the royal history. And then the National Museum really is the best collection anywhere of Polish art. And Beata, you mentioned always go to the capital city when you visit a country. Well, for one reason, that's probably where the greatest art is. What, what do you take? What's your take on the National Museum? Um, I completely agree with you. But I don't want to take away anything from other museums that has been popping up this past 20 uh, plus years. Um, what are your favorites of those? We have a, I don't know if that's a correct word to say, very trendy mm-hmm. museum, like the Pauline Museum, Museum of Polish uh, Jews, the mm-hmm. history of over a thousand years. The Poland Museum, P-O-L-I-N. Correct. The Museum of History of Polish Jews. Okay, and what? why would there be a great museum about Jewish culture in Poland? I think many people don't realize that when it comes to Jews in Poland and the, or Jewish culture in Poland, that does not go only back to the beginning of the uh, 1900s. We have the history of this culture in Poland for over a thousand years. And at some point in 1600s, Poland was uh, a place, a country, with the uh, highest number of uh, people representing a Jewish community anywhere in the world. Is that right? In Poland. So within Europe, Poland certainly was a major center of Jewish culture. Yes, we became like their safe haven. Uh, They would... Uh, leave other countries to come to Poland and uh, freely do their business and practice their religion. Centuries before Hitler. Right, about three, four uh, centuries before that, yes. So Cameron, I would think a lot of people sort of overlooked the fact that there was a long Polish history before we have the uh, tragedies of World War II and the Holocaust. That's right. It's, there was a very long Jewish, very proud Jewish history. And what I love about this museum that you're mentioning, the Museum of the History of Polish Jews, Honestly, it's my favorite historical museum anywhere in Europe. It's a, it's a quite new museum, which uses beautiful modern techniques to tell the story, not just of the Holocaust, but of the entire tapestry of Polish culture going back to the Middle Ages when they first arrived and so forth. And I think a lot of visitors to Poland might overfocus on the tragedy of World War II, especially the Holocaust. But what I love about this museum is there's a very thoughtful and well-presented section on the Holocaust, but that's a very small part of a larger story of Jewish people who really thrived in Poland for many centuries. And I think that's important to give that that full look and celebration of Jewish culture, as well as to remember the tragedies of the Holocaust. And the Warsaw Uprising Museum is a completely different museum. Right. And I mean, I've got to say, think about Warsaw as like the Washington, D.C. of Poland. And just like in Washington, D.C., there's all sorts of museums covering all different topics. So that would be one of them, the Warsaw History Museum, sorry, the Warsaw Uprising Museum, mm-hmm. um, which opened a few years before. Which the, is a very good museum. Excellent museum. Opened a few years before this Jewish museum we're talking about. Also uses very modern techniques to tell the story of this very uh, courageous uprising of the Polish people under Nazi occupation, uh, which was which was savagely uh, put down by Hitler. Mm. There's also a beautiful uh, science center, the Copernicus Science Center, uh, which is really a kid family oriented sort of place with a lot of hands on exhibits that teaches Polish kids, but also visiting kids from other countries about science. Um, they've recently refurbished the Chopin Museum. So if you want to learn about the great Polish composer Friedrich Chopin, there's an excellent museum about his life and his music. There's museums, uh, you know, if museums are an important part of your travels in Europe, uh, Warsaw is a great city for that. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, Cameron Hewitt and Beata McComas about Warsaw, the capital city of Poland, and uh, in a lot of ways the, uh, the very tourist-friendly and cute city of Krakow, which is very important historically, draws a lot more people. It's a little closer to the rest of Europe, but Warsaw is certainly worth a look when you are going to Poland. And uh, one thing I've enjoyed in Warsaw, Beata, is the Wazinski Park. You just walk through this park and you feel an elegance that's kind of timeless. That's, well, by the way, that's the biggest park in Poland, 76 hectares big. So if you want to visit, you better have your walking shoes with you. And, it's a, and it goes back to the time of kings, doesn't it? Right. It's built by the kings. You've got yes. beautiful neoclassical architecture. Absolutely. It goes back to the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wazienki in Polish means baths because there was a bath pavilion where the king would okay. bathe. Uh, but beside that pavilion, you also had uh, orangery, which is uh, a place where they would grow um, orange trees for king's use. You have a lake where you can uh, rent a boat and just uh, swim away. And you've got that beautiful statue of Chopin with concerts in the summer. Right. In the summer, you get free concerts. What can be better? And, of course, you have vendors on the outskirts of the of the park. You have vendors where you can purchase uh, to-go uh, food and just grab it with you, uh, eat it while you listen to Chopin music. I forget where I was. I forget what park this is in. But I was sitting on a bench, and there's a button on the bench, and I can push the button and hear Chopin's music. Yes. That's actually, uh, this this kind of bench is in several places. In, <laughs> That's so in, in, good. And then, Cameron, I was in one hotel that you recommended to me, and the man's mission in life is to keep the charm and the culture of uh, salon music, chamber music, with, and celebrate Chopin at the same time. Describe that evening you can have at that hotel. Sure. That's the Chopin Boutique B&B, which is a beautiful location right in central Warsaw, and it's run by uh, Jadik, uh, who's a good friend of ours who's been running this place for 10 or 12 years. And he realized that all of these visitors were coming and learning about Warsaw and loving it, and they just didn't have a place to enjoy a Chopin concert. Five, ten years ago, there weren't a lot of opportunities for that other than these outdoor concerts in the summer. So he said, I'm going to fix that. So he turned one of uh, a, a beautiful kind of a salon on the ground floor of his hotel into a, a very elegant interwar style drawing room from Poland's golden age. And every night he invites a different performer to come and play a live piano concert. And all of the people who stay at that B&B or anyone from the community who wants to come, they all turn up and it's not just a concert because Jarek loves conversation. So he'll, you know, bring out snacks and drinks and he'll introduce people to each other and try to get, you know, it's a very, it's a very uh, kind of a sophisticated but accessible, you know, side of Warsaw that any visitor can uh, experience. A, a salon. I went to that, and it was so charming. I was supposed to be in my room doing all my uh, research work and my writing, and I just couldn't stay away because this charmed me as the kind of elegant, cultured conviviality that must have been the norm in well-heeled circles all over Europe before there was TV and recorded music and so on. People would get together, somebody would play the piano, and people would talk. It's a beautiful thing. Our guides to Warsaw right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Polish-born Bieta McComas and Cameron Hewitt, who's my co-author and researcher on the Rick Steves Eastern Europe Guidebook. Note that our conversation was recorded shortly before the pandemic and international border closures began. We've been talking about the history of Warsaw and the, and, and the difficult history of Warsaw. Let's just finish off with each of your favorite look at something that's fresh and trendy and happening and lively today. Warsaw is a happening place in so many cases around Europe. We see this this new generation filled with creativity and energy. Uh, Beata, what would you uh, recommend somebody experience to see the 
energy, the positive energy of Warsaw today? Three places come to mind. One would be just on the banks of uh, Vistola River. They finished uh, this huge project. We're doing the whole uh, one side of the Vistola River. So a lot of young people, cafes, music, very safe place to go, close to the old part of the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, second would be um, Halakoszyki, which is where you can get a food from all over the world. It is still an old um, market building with very young vibe. And the third one would be all the railway station uh, with a whole bunch of food trucks. So all, those all the railway stations, or which just one, which, one all the railway station, the old railway station, yes, okay. and uh, with uh, with food with trucks, food trucks uh, yes, and uh, music at night. Nice, Cameron. Can you give us the names of those places so we can remember it? Uh, well, the food hall. It's the Hala Koshiki. Hala Koshiki on the river. The just the Vistula Riverbank. Yeah. So, because when I went there years ago, the Vistula Riverbank just seemed abandoned. There was not much there, but now it's a lively people center. Well, and that's the story of Warsaw. I've been really mm-hmm. impressed. Every time I, I tend to go back every year or two uh, to work on our guidebook, mm-hmm. and and uh, every time I go back, I, I find out, oh, there's this whole new nightlife or outdoor uh, living scene that's going on. Recently, it was the riverbanks along the Vistula River. It used to be kind of a no man's land. It was even right. dangerous to go there after dark. On my most recent visit, everyone said, oh, no, they've they've turned it into a beautiful park yeah. and families are out. And sure enough... Um, it felt foreboding and dangerous to me that's years right. ago. Yeah. And then uh, I hope Beata didn't take all of your favorite No, there's one places. I have one that's actually related. It's near the food hall she mentioned. But my favorite, and I think I really want to emphasize that it, people wonder, why would you go to Warsaw? Well, you go for great museums and this heavy history. But also, it's a really fun, lively, modern, contemporary city with a great food scene. Believe it or not, Warsaw has a wonderful budget food scene. If you're interested in really good restaurants for low prices, there are a few better places that you can go in Warsaw. And right near this food hall that's wonderful that Beata mentioned is a neighborhood called Schrodmeszcze, which literally means downtown. It's confusing. It's not actually downtown. It's mm-hmm. south of, of what we would call downtown. Uh, but in this area, there's this wonderful thriving food scene, and they have really international quality restaurants, in some cases Michelin star restaurants, that you can have a fantastic meal uh, for a fraction of the cost of what you would pay in London or Paris for comparable quality. And then there's also affordable budget options as well. So it's really a fun city to explore. But don't go looking for romantic, old-world, cute Europe. There is a reconstructed old town, but it feels reconstructed and pretty touristy. Go for a contemporary, modern, exciting, thriving, vibrant city. Well, if you want a, the old-world charm, take bus 116 from the Castle Square all the way to the end to Vilanov, to the, the Baroque um, Palace that was not destroyed during either First or Second World War. And you'll get a little bit of that charm. I think I would get my old-world charm in Krakow mm-hmm. or in uh, Gdansk. Cameron Hewitt, Beata Makomis. Actually, Beata, how do you say thank you in Polish? Dziękuję. Dziękuję. And how do you say happy travels? Bon voyage. Szczęśliwej podróży. Bon voyage. <laughs> <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Kaz Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
Find out when other radio stations air travel with Rick Steves. You can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.